0: This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. It's all about young Roger de Hopeville today, as the baby of the Hopeville brood takes his first steps into the world of international politics, warfare, and legend building. I um, I think you're going to really enjoy Roger's story, but it coincides with his older brother Robert Giscard's story, which, as I've said, is leading us on a direct collision with the mighty Eastern Roman Empire. First, though, again, we have Roger and his designs on Italy's island neighbor, Muslim-run Sicily. Now, writing in the year 1787, the famous German author Goethe once said the following when visiting the Sicilian city of Palermo. He said, quote, Italy without Sicily cannot be conceived. Here is the key to everything. End quote. Now, in this podcast, we're just starting that story, a story that will show us why Goethe is so painfully correct. This is episode 110, and it's entitled Roger's First Steps. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. So far on the podcast, whenever Southern Italy was talked about, we were reminded of the continuing strained relationship that hallmarked every new Hopeville boy who ventured into Southern Italy. Though the Hopeville brood began with the eldest son, Serlo de Hopeville, the rest of them had enjoyed stories galore from Southern Italy about Normans who had found much success and wealth and fame there. Not to mention something that these boys were simply not promised, land. The Hopeville migration, because that's really what it was, began with the fourth eldest boy, Humphrey, joining second-born William Ironarm and third-born Drogo, though the strain was far less between those brothers due to their shared parentage of both father and mother. However, things were further strained when Papa Tancred remarried, and had a whole new brood of children, the first of whom, to move south, would be that woman's firstborn, a man who came to be called Giscard. By that time, William Ironarm had died and Drogo was in charge. It was Drogo who sent the youngest down to Calabria in a fool's errand, but the young man returned having subdued the wily and rebellious Greeks in the wild mountainous toe of the boot. Then a few more Hopevilles came south, though none of them earned the prestige as their older brothers. Drogo died, leaving Humphrey in charge, and Humphrey really disliked his younger brother, Robert Guiscard, but needed him all the same, even having him by his side at the famous, or infamous, Battle of Civitate in 1053, when they captured Pope Leo IX. Humphrey died. But not before naming his infant son heir to both Apulia and Calabria, and placing Robert in charge. Well, we know how that turned out. Robert immediately stole Humphrey's domain for his own and cast the young boy, baby, really, aside, not harming him necessarily, just, you know, stealing his inheritance. With Robert Guiscard in charge, as of the year 1057, that is, though some sources say as early as 1056. The youngest and last of the Hopeville brood arrived in southern Italy to join Giscard. His name, as we know, was Roger. With that quick rundown, I think we're ready to you know, get into the meat of the episode. Now, Roger de Hopeville was, yes, as I've said many times, the baby of the Hopeville family. He and Robert did share a mother, along with a couple other Hopeville boys, such as the second William de Hopeville, who just helped Roger during his first fallout with Robert in 1058. But make no mistake, the competitive nature of the Hopeville boys never really went away. And by 1059, Roger was back in Robert's good graces after helping him quell another uprising by those rowdy Calabrians after a debilitating famine the year before. I mean, who wouldn't rise and revolt after their their overlord has caused a massive famine. Now, in fact, though Roger was so much in Robert's good graces at that point, that Robert gave Roger his own domain, cut straight from his own lands in exchange for bailing him out. Now, much of our information about Roger de Hopeville comes from a biographical account completed in the year 1098 by the priest named... Jeffrey Malaterra, or as we just refer to him on the show and throughout history, as just Malaterra. It's worth noting that Malaterra was the beneficiary of heaping amounts of support from Roger uh, over the previous years. So much of what is written in this account is quite praiseworthy of the youngest Hopeville, but it's also worth noting that Roger in many ways lived up to much of that hype. As mentioned before, Paraphrasing our chronicler here, Malaterra, Roger was certainly the best of what the Hopeville family had to offer. It was as if the boys, generation after generation, were unknowingly perfecting their blood and paving the way for the greatest Hopeville of them all. And come on, that's that's quite a statement right there. The greatest of them all? So William Ironarm was a living legend in his own time. Drogo was feared but widely respected. Humphrey captured and imprisoned one of the most formidable popes in history, let alone people, in the 11th century. And, of course, Robert Guiscard was, well, we're still unraveling his story, but suffice it to say for now that he damn near became an emperor. And yet, Roger is considered the greatest of them all. If this doesn't entice you to keep listening to, the, to his story, I, I'm not sure what will. Just one quick note before we begin Roger's story here. When I'm quoting Malatera's chronicle called The Deeds of Count Roger and his brother, Duke Robert Guiscard, yes, that's the full name of Malatera's account, you'll hear Roger, even when he first arrived in southern Italy, in that narrative, you'll hear him be referred to as Count Roger. Yes, it's a little bit of a spoiler at this point in our story, Roger de Hopeville will forever be known as Count Roger. Just wanted to give you a heads up. To begin, beginning when Roger was not yet Count. (laughs) Uh, To begin, we must know that Roger's story largely takes place on the island of Sicily, literally within sight of the toe of Italy's boot. Sicily is an island I've personally always remembered as the soccer ball being kicked by that boot. But that's just me and my lifelong love of not only soccer but the mighty Italian teams of the 80s and 90s, with their Catenaccio strategy and brilliant goalkeeping. But I digress. It's a large island, roughly nine thousand nine hundred square miles, which falls right between the sizes of the U.S. states of Vermont and New Hampshire. Sicily's circumferenced by amazing beaches, beautiful port cities, even back in the 11th century, known for their for their grandiose uh, beauty. Ancient ruins archaeologists are still unearthing today, and a periodically active volcano called Mount Etna. Between 2013 and 2020, people have enjoyed watching Etna's volatile but beautiful eruptions in one of its longest streaks in recorded history, and it's apparently begun again as recently as 2022. Etna could could have been erupting at any point during the time period our narrative takes place, which is an interesting side note. I'd be curious if I can find that data, if we even know that data. Now, since the year 827, Muslims of the Aglabid dynasty, based out of modern-day Tunisia, had crossed the 230 miles of Mediterranean Sea and began to slowly take over the island from the resident Orthodox Greek Christians. Orthodox Greek, because it was firmly Eastern Roman territory at the time. From the year 948, the Aglabids were replaced by the Calbite dynasty, the Calbites being under the sway of the more powerful Fatimids out of Cairo that we've talked about. No real change was seen across the island, as both were of the same Shia branch of Islam. This, This stability, I should say, coupled with the already established economic and cultural integration experienced across the island over the previous century, only solidified Sicily's prosperity heading into this tumultuous 11th century. And then came the Byzantines, led by Mercurial General George Maniakis, back in the year 1038. Richard Brown, in his book, Count Roger of Sicily, Portrait of a Ruler, writes, quote, by the ten fifties, political power on the island had fragmented into three contending principalities: the west was ruled by Abd Allah ibn Manqet, the south and the center by Ibn al Hawas, and the east by Ibn Maklati, based in Catania. End quote. Now, Catania, uh, just for reference, Catania being the city halfway up the eastern coast of Sicily, just north of Syracuse and just south of Messina. And Mount Etna. Brown says that of these three rulers, Ibn al-Hawas was the most powerful of these due to his central place on the island, which is beneficial to keep in mind as we continue here. It will come into play. Another thing to make note of is that Ibn al-Makladi died in late 1057 or 1058, there about the time that Roger de Hauteville came south, making the next most powerful man in the East the leader there. That man was named Ibn al-Timna, and he will play a pivotal role in the coming events. Ibn al-Timna was also married to Ibn al-Hawas's sister, so his ties to the power in the center of the island were very strong. Though culturally and economically connected, Sicily was fractured, and this fracturing was exacerbated by the Byzantine incursions in the late 1030s and 1040s which Maniakis did a great job pitting one emir against another in his quest to re-Christianize the once Greek Orthodox island. Now, we pick up from last episode's narrative as the now Duke Robert Guiscard, having just taken his oath to protect and serve Pope Nicholas II and his successors, as he arrives from Melfi at the Calabrian city of Cariati. Roger was already there, having conducted a siege for the previous few weeks to no avail. But the moment Robert's banners were seen outside Cariotti's walls, the city just gave up. They knew the destruction that Robert Guiscard was capable of. If you remember from way back on the podcast, it was Calabria that a younger Robert de Hauteville earned the very nickname Guiscard, or the Clever, or the wily, or the Fox. Those are the translations. And depending on who was calling him giesgard it should be said, depended on whether it was a good thing or not. The people of Cariati were most assuredly not using the name positively. So Cariati had given up instantly. They just knew what was in store. Now a quick point to make that John Julius Norwich, in his book The Other Conquest, points out, was that Robert giesgard merely put his little brother in charge. Yes, he approved the siege. That was the whole point in putting Roger there, but what young Roger did would mark a turning point in the Normans' already legendary rise in southern Italy. See, Roger decided on his own to do something that only Lombards had done in the region thus far. Roger ordered the construction of siege engines which were devastating structures that amplified the impact of a siege and offered a variety of advantages to the besiegers, such as higher vantage points, for instance, which really helps out on a battlefield. It shocks me to think that not a single Norman army had done that as of 1059. And again, it was young Roger who was the first to use them. Now, this besieged city, Cariati, was really the last point of defense for the coastal city of Reggio, way down at the tip of Italy's boot, like I said, on the coast. Though it's certainly the closest point from the mainland to the island of Sicily, at least in terms of more urbanized centers of population, that is, though it was the closest, one could still see the opposite shore way off in the distance, namely the snow-covered peak, that's right, of Mount Etna that we've mentioned. With Cariati defeated, and now in Norman hands, Reggio was simply sold to the Normans. Yeah, just sold. What was so big about Reggio? Well, Reggio was the you know, de facto capital of Calabria, and at the time that Robert Guiscard became the Duke of Calabria, he hadn't fully conquered it yet. Not officially. Reggio, the capital of Calabria, was, before the sale, was the last holdout of Eastern Roman control in Calabria itself, a rather large region, like I said, the toe of the Italian boot. Byzantine power in the toe of Italy was now completely gone. Norwich offers a little extra detail, which I find interesting. Quote, At last, they were forced to surrender, and the Duke of Apulia rode in triumphal procession through the city. Between the long rows of marble villas and palaces for which it was famous, the garrison, to whom Robert had offered generous terms, fled to a nearby fortress on the rock of Scylla, where they held out for a little while longer. But they soon realized that their cause was hopeless, and one moonless summer night all embarked secretly for Constantinople. On that night, Greek political rule in Calabria came to an end. It never returned." End quote. Reggio now became Robert Guiscard's capital city of Norman-held Calabria, and that's a pretty big moment in in Robert's story as well as Roger's. As Norwich adds to this, quote, "Now at last Robert and Roger were ready for Sicily." End quote. All major obstacles, he says, had been overcome. Robert was the leader of pretty much all of southern Italy except for a couple handfuls of smaller principalities, such as Salerno, for instance, though Salerno, Salerno, I have to admit, sliced Calabria and Apulia right down the middle, which is something he'll have to work on at some point. Otherwise, the Greeks were gone from the entire peninsula, barring the city of Bari on the backside of the boot. That city will also have its day soon enough, but not quite yet, so hold on to that. Now, on top of all that, though, the young German king, was too inexperienced to act in southern Italy, and the Holy Roman Empire was paralyzed because of it. Southern Italy, though Christian all around, having been under Byzantine control for as long as it was, southern Italy was largely Eastern Orthodox, despite its close proximity to Rome. However, now that the Catholic Normans were in charge, the small pockets of Catholics across Apulia and Calabria now rose to the surface, empowered by their new overlords even coming to regale them as quote-unquote liberators, as Norwich writes. Things were really looking good, like like really, really good for Robert Guiscard and his Normans by 1059. Southern Italy was theirs. Now, Normans were still Norman, so it wasn't perfect and prosperous and peaceful, but as for the power structure itself, things were in place for expansion should they want to take advantage of it. So, no doubt content with things at the moment, Robert and Roger found themselves staying in Reggio. And for his efforts, and no doubt his thanks from his older brother, Duke Robert Giscard lifted Roger from a mere knight to Count of Reggio, a vassal to Robert. But as much as Roger appreciated the gesture, he wasn't happy to stop at Reggio. Like all Hautevilles, and certainly all Normans, riding south out of France, he had bigger plans. Roger, without question, looked across the Strait of Messina, towards Sicily, and he wanted it. Not just the coast on the other side, not just some beach house. He wanted the entire island. Roger de Hauteville wanted, above all things, Sicily. And three things played into his advantage in getting the men and resources and support for such a plan. Number one, his older brother Robert had just been named Duke of Sicily, as we know. So the assumption that Normans would be taking Sicily in the near future was automatically supported by the Pope. In fact, it was part of their agreement when he became Duke of Apulia, Duke of Calabria, and Duke of Sicily. Number two, the crusader spirit that would erupt in a matter of decades had already gripped Rome. Make no mistake about that, folks as these were the years that Iberia was bursting with anti-Muslim action, even birthing legends such as El Cid in its wake. Sicily was currently ruled by a Zirid caliph back in modern-day Tunisia in northern Africa, but three major emirs vied for control there, effectively fracturing the union of the island. We just went through that earlier on this episode. The thing about the caliph was that he was recently booted from power and on the lam as folks were actively hunting him down. Muslim control in Sicily was shaky at best in the mid-11th century, certainly by 1059. Well, with all of that, the Pope was clearly giving a nod to his new Norman allies that if they wanted to take a crack at Sicily and turn it back to Christianity, then they were welcome to do it. In fact, doing such a thing would probably not only result in massive stores of new wealth, but also an untold generosity from the papacy itself. That was was a pretty good deal, pretty good gamble to take. So number three, finally, we have the fact that, religion aside, Sicily was home to untold numbers of Saracen pirates. Port cities, such as Palermo, Syracuse, and many others were homes for these bandits who constantly raided the coasts of Italy, even as far north as Genoa, which was currently experiencing a little boon as it was striving to contend with mighty Venice on the other side of the peninsula. Genoa, for those who might remember, would be the powerful maritime city-state that would one day call Christopher Columbus a national hero of sorts. These Saracen pirates were everywhere and they were a scourge on Italian prosperity and trade. They could very easily be likened to the central Mediterranean's version of the Vikings up north. Either way, these Saracen pirates had to be defeated once and for all for Calabria to prosper and grow. These three things, as I said, played very well into Roger's designs and motivations on Sicily. Malaterra writes this, when Roger first heard, quote, that Sicily was in the hands of the infidels, end quote. Malaterra continues, quote, seeing it from close at hand with only a short stretch of sea lying in between, he was seized by the desire to capture it, for he was always eager for conquest. He perceived two means by which he would profit, one for his soul and the other for his material benefit. If he brought back to divine worship, a country given over to idolatry, and if he himself possessed the temporal fruits and income from this land, thus spending in the service of God things which had been unjustly stolen by a people who knew him not. Quote. It's worth noting that the word him in Malatera's writing right there was capitalized, thus implying that the Muslims who ruled over Sicily were not only infidels themselves which at the time was a word used on both sides of the issue to describe the other, but also implying that Muslims simply were not known to God, that they have been misled, that they were worshiping an idol in place of the one true God. Yeah, I mean, those are fighting words, certainly today. So, Malaterra didn't really hold back in his outlook on Islam, and this is important because he was writing during the 1090s, And those who know their history know what happened between Christians and Muslims in that decade, what erupted then. The religious fervor in the decades leading up to the Crusades was what directly fed the fire of enmity between two of the three branches of the Abrahamic faith. From Iberia, which we've discussed already with El Cid et al, to the Seljuks after Manzikert, to now Sicily. It may be a Spanish word, But Reconquista wasn't solely a Spanish thing. wasn't a Spanish idea. It didn't belong to the future Spaniards. The Mediterranean, if you haven't noticed already during the 11th century, from west to east, was catching fire. And these two religions, Christianity and Islam, were simply the tools and the ideologies used to fight land and legitimacy and cultural wars that sadly persist today. So, Malaterra hates Muslims. Got it. <laughs> he wasn't alone, and we can't forget that the language used in these texts are very telling and should not be overlooked. Islam and Christianity both were becoming heated enemies, no longer content with their toddler's parallel play with each other any longer. Sicily was merely the next flashpoint. And it should be noted, that it seems on so far in our narrative that it's 100% you know the the christians in the 11th century pushing into muslim territories but nobody's innocent there you know it wasn't just one as the oppressor that's not the way history should be looked at in my opinion it's not an oppressed versus oppressor thing it's one person does something the other person responds it could be centuries later, but that person will do something back and the other person responds. So at this point in Iberia, you've got the Christians on the move, trying to take the, that peninsula back into Christian hands while the Muslims were down. But at the same time, you go straight across the Mediterranean to the absolute opposite side. And you've got the, at this time, mid to late 11th century, you've got the Seljuk Turks, Muslims on the move, taking advantage of a weakened Christian state out there. It's just the jostling back and forth of history. Not, just not one group is the oppressor forever in history. That's just not the way it works. Um, and I find that a very uh, silly silly argument to make when studying history. But see here, Sicily was merely the next flashpoint. And it's interesting to think that, you know, the Christians on the west were making the moves and the the Muslims on the east were making the moves. And here's Sicily, where there's almost an even battle between both of them, right? One side wasn't pushing more than the other side. I suppose, at least not in the beginning of the Norman conquest of Sicily. But again, Sicily was merely the next flashpoint, right smack in the middle of it. So it's very, very interesting Reconquistan movements or crusading movements from the 1150s on through to the beginning of the first crusade. So Roger de Hopeville was the spark. It was Roger de Hopeville that took the flame uh, amid other sparks, such as other sparks being George Maniaki's, William Ironarm, Robert Giscard, and yes, even... Ibn, al- Ibn al-Hawas, who had his own designs for the island, which we'll get into as well. In the end, though, it was Roger de Hauteville. So, in May of 1060, from the city of Reggio in Calabria, Roger sets off with sixty knights across the Strait of Messina, the very same strait where Odysseus met another obstacle on his journey home millennia earlier, after the Trojan War, when he had to navigate these treacherous waters inhabited by two and hear me on this, two of the most terrifying Greek monsters in its famous mythology, that of Scylla and Charybdis. Roger landed in the dark of early morning, and residents of the area in and around the populous city of Messina were quite unaware until that morning. They immediately became enraged, says Malaterra, quote, when they realized that their enemies had invaded their territory, and in particular because they saw how few they were, end quote. Now, in other words, they looked at Rogers' measly 60 knights and were, were offended that this Nor- Norman pony boy would think so little of them to only bring such a small force. Quote, they hurried from the city gates as fast as they could and went out to engage them. End quote. When this happened, Roger, being the clever young lad he was, having been raised on the stories of his older brothers and the feats and tactics over the previous couple decades from other Normans as well, well, he pulled his forces back and he retreated. It's said he even organized it in such a way as to make it look just chaotic enough of a retreat to express surprise and fear among his men. This filled the men of Messina with such pride that they relaxed just a bit. It was at this point that Roger abruptly turned and attacked them with the force of a small tsunami. The Muslims had no chance to respond except to drop everything and run back to the safety of their walls of Messina. Roger raked in the horses, the weapons, the food, everything else abandoned by the local militia and then proceeded to chase them all the way back to that city. But Roger knew something that the locals were unaware of. See. While he was pulling the entire garrison, including any and every man of fighting age and ability, mind you, away from Messina, leaving the city completely vulnerable, filled with nothing more than women, children, and the elderly. See, Robert Giscard himself rushed the city walls, took the city without any fighting to speak of, and immediately made a deal with the ruler of Messina, the emir Ibn al-Timna to help the emir resolve his issues with neighboring emir ibn al-Hawas, the powerful one, the Muslim powerhouse of the island, that is. That's right. While Roger drew the military away from the city, Robert swooped in and completely undermined the Muslim political structure in the east part of the island, further fracturing the already broken Muslim hierarchy. Keep in mind the familial ties of emir ibn al-Timda with Ibn al-Hawas, Ibn Al-Timna, again, was married to Al-Hawas's sister. So Roger and Robert Giscard, they were right off the bat, a pretty deadly one-two punch, if there ever was one. The beginning of Sicily's end of Muslim rule happened within a 24-hour period in May 1060. It's almost unbelievable. But it happened, and it was this campaign against Messina that began Roger's legend. Now, from Messina, Malaterra tells us that within weeks, the two Norman brothers had swept northeastern Sicily, taking the city of Rometta next. After Rometta, they took the towns of Centuripe and Paterno, and then promptly constructed a castle at San Marco dalunzio on the peak of a high mountaintop overlooking the Mediterranean Sea, on Sicily's northeastern coast. It was close to the ocean for easy access to the island, and it was a strategically sound place with not only a spectacular view, but also a spectacular 360 degree vantage point. They may not have been, excuse me, they have, may not have found a better place to build a castle in those early years of the Norman conquest of Sicily. Yeah, sorry, England. You're not the only wealthy, prosperous, and insanely fertile island nations who who were conquered by the Normans. So what? Roger and Robert Guiscard now have a firm foothold in Sicily, and the rest of the conquest is history, right? Not exactly. See, strangely, with Messina's emir firmly in their pocket, Guiscard leads his little brother and their knights back across the Strait of Messina to Calabria completely abandoning the island for the time being. Now, it's weird, because Normans rarely played the part of the patient conqueror. When they took a city, they took the damn city. However, when Mac- with Messina, they abandoned it. We don't know Roger's reaction to this, but his brother was still above him in the hierarchy of Norman rule in southern Italy, so whether Roger approved of it or not was not a fight he was ready to have. Not yet, anyway. Taking their first steps off the boat, back in Calabria, back on the mainland, Robert received word that Apulia was in an uproar. Calabria, he could understand, but Apulia was fairly calm when he had left it, so it was a bit of a surprise. Robert Giscard placed Roger in charge of everything in Calabria while he jumped on a horse and headed northeast toward Apulia, swinging by to pick up another Hopeville brother, a far lesser-known though still in a position of power in the region, a brother named Malger, And when the two Hautevilles reached Apulia, Robert had learned, according to Malaterra, quote, that nearly everyone had been plundering his property, which was, in consequence, in great disorder. He spent the whole winter carefully restoring and refurnishing it back to its original state, end quote. Basically, the guy got got ransacked. It was at this time that Robert Guiscard, as we know, became officially Duke Robert of Apulia and Calabria, making Roger Calabria's count. Hence, Malaterra's use of the title Count Roger. Told you it would come together. Make no mistake, though, Robert Guiscard leveraged his recent activities in Messina in order to get the title of Duke, because it wasn't just Apulia and Calabria that, became, that he became Duke of. No, as we know, the Pope declared him Duke of all of Sicily as well. <laughs> pay no mind to the fact that Robert didn't own a single grain of sand on Sicily's beaches at the time, or even a single lemon grown on its multitude of lemon orchards found across the breadth of the island. To the Pope, the fact that he had the ambition to control the island and turn it once again to to the Christian faith, this time, it's important to point out the one true faith of Catholicism in their eyes. Well, that was enough. And as far as he was concerned, that was far more than what was needed to give him that duchy, at least in name. So just as Robert Guiscard planted the seed of rebellion with the emir of Messina, we can look at Roger's acceptance of his brother's promotion as his own seed for his own future plans in Sicily. Give Robert the win now, knowing he will have the last laugh. That's a statement made in hindsight, but it seems to fit whether true or not. And with that, Duke Robert Guiscard received his new ally unexpectedly in the city of Reggio, his brother Roger by his side. That new ally, Emir Ibn Altimna, when it was discovered that he had cut a deal with the invading Normans while they were off fighting Roger's forces, well, he'd been expelled by the people of Messina. Well, I mean, that wasn't the whole story. That, That was the official story, but it wasn't the whole story. It seems Ibn Altimna, Killed his sister's husband, for some reason. And the man's brother, a guy named Belcamet, a powerful warlord in the area of northeastern Sicily, defeated Altimna and sent him packing. Altimna had nowhere else to go, except to the court of Duke Robert Guiscard. And he begged and pleaded for Robert to help him regain his place in the Sicilian power structure. But there was something else I found tucked in a little paragraph in Norwich's book, The Other Conquest about why Ibn Altimna left Sicily. And I'm wondering if the story about killing a sister's husband was tucked inside of this other story. See, Norwich tells us that Roger, whether Robert Giscard knew about it or not, I'm not sure, but Roger apparently crossed the strait again, sometime in that little span of time, and did a number on the eastern coast of Sicily in various raiding missions that seemed to test the whole situation out again. And when he returned by mid-February of 1061, and this is when Ibn al-Timnah showed up, well, it was within weeks, just inside the start of March. Norwich expands on the sister's husband's story with the following, The feuding, which had so long continued between two of the Sicilian emirs, Ibn al-Timnah and Ibn al-Hawas, had now flared up into open warfare, end quote. You see how this might include the sister's husband's killing episode? Norwich follows this up with details about how years earlier the two emirs attempted to patch things up by Ibn Al-Timna marrying Ibn al-Hawas's sister, as we know. Well, recently it seems that Ibn al-Timnah's wife, quote unquote, called in a drunken fury to Al-Timna's slaves and ordered them to open her veins. Yeah, it was only in the fast action of her son that doctors were able to save her life. The marriage clearly wasn't exactly the healthiest relationship. It turns out that she immediately escaped to her powerful brother, Ibn al-Hawas, for safety. When Ibn al timnah traveled inland to the mighty fortress city of Enna, where his wife was being kept by al-Hawas, and demanded her return, al-Hawas held out. Norwich says that al-Timna, quote, instead suffered an inglorious defeat in the valley, end quote. The valley, that is, below Enna. Was this the defeat spoken about in the sister's husband's story, quote-unquote? It seems likely to me that they are one and the same, and it doesn't erase any detail of the former story. Maybe Altimna's sister was married to a man loyal to al as part of the patching up that gave him al sister in marriage. Again, it seems likely that Malaterra may not have been privy to the other information. We know that other chroniclers were also tracking the story, but they were chroniclers based in Muslim Sicily. Namely, an Arab historian named Ibn al-Athir wrote about how when Altimna escaped to Calabria that he promised Robert Guiscard in Norwich's words, quote, no less a prize in return for the liquidation of his enemy than the domination of the whole of Sicily. End quote. Well, to a Norman, such a claim was certainly worthy of the effort to explore further. <laughs> Duke Robert gave Roger the nod to explore away. <laughs> I say explore in quotations here. Giving the young count the service of one of his most able and experienced knights, a man named Geoffrey Riddell. So it was, in the early spring of 1061, Count Roger, along with Ibn Timna himself and about 160 Norman knights, well, they crossed the Strait of Messina yet again, but Messina wasn't in Roger's immediate crosshairs. Roger landed his forces at his new castle at San Marco de Luncio, again on the north coast of Sicily, and then worked his way back east toward Messina. First, though, before attacking the city, being the invading army, Roger needed to establish a base of operations and procure the necessities of leading a small army food, extra horses, you know, all that, so on. He immediately turned his sights on a town called Milazzo, which was on a thin peninsula stretching far out into the Mediterranean, creating a natural harbor to the west of Messina. It would serve as a great place to set up shop, almost halfway between Messina and their castle of San Marco de Luncio up, up the coast. Malaterra writes, quote, Marching at night, not far from the city of Messina, he encountered a certain Saracen, the brother of the man Altimna had killed, for whose death Altimna had been driven from Sicily. This man was extremely well known among his people for his warlike exploits. Indeed, when he had learned on the previous evening that the count had landed in Sicily with his troops, he felt that his own forces were more than sufficient to deal with them. End quote. It was this guy, with his big ego, who apparently thought he could take Roger's forces head-on and bully the Norman off the island, if not kill him outright. This guy marched by night, and we see him meet Roger's forces on their way to Malazzo. This somewhat took Roger by surprise, as he was comfortably riding ahead of his army under the cover of night. Malaterra tells us that he was, at the time, understandably, wearing absolutely no armor whatsoever. "'Roger had only his shield hanging from his horse's flank "'and a sword strapped to his waist. "'The Chronicler continues, quote, "'When by the light of the moon he observed the enemy's arrival, "'he had gone too far in front of his squire to take his armor from him. "'Indeed, it was possible that the latter, "'if he had seen anything in the darkness, had fled. "'So he put on speed and charged his enemy, armed with only a sword.' He killed him with a single blow, cutting him in half. The body lay in two pieces, the horse and personal effects he gave to one of his men. End quote. So that was that for the man who defeated and expelled Ibn Altimna, apparently, cut in half by an armorless Roger de Hauteville. As much as I love this story, I, I'm just not sure I can quite believe it. He certainly could have defeated the man in battle, even one-on-one combat right there in the moonlight. I mean, Roger was known for that. But... It just seems awfully similar to another Norman who traveled south and kicked off his own legend. Remember back when to when we discussed William and Drogo de Hopeville, both fighting under General George Maniakis? They were attacking Syracuse, desperately trying to wrest control away from the Saracens who had occupied it for nearly 200 years. Well, the emir burst forth from the gates of Syracuse in a last-ditch effort to push the Byzantine army away, and it nearly worked. Maniacis called for a full retreat. From his high vantage point, he could see the battlefield spread out before him. He could see his Greek soldiers running back. He could see his Varangian guard under the leadership of a young Harold Hardrada in full retreat as well but right smack in the middle of the battlefield, he saw one Norman knight, William de Hauteville, turn and face the emir himself as the emir rode toward him. On foot, this crazy Norman sprinted at the oncoming horse and, according to the story, cleaved the emir into two with one blow. The shockwave across the battlefield was enough to win the day for the Byzantines, as well as earn William the nickname Iron Arm. So was Roger, the man who commissioned Malatera to write his biography, mind you, was Roger simply using the story of this older brother, the first to hopeful boy to, to ride south and become famous on his own? Was he just using that? It was certainly a powerful kind of story to tell, but is it entirely true? I don't know, but I don't think so. But here's a better question, I think. Does the truth actually here matter? On the other hand, I will always say that the capital T truth matters, but legends also serve as entertainment. So in those regards, I would say that the capital T truth of this can be played with a bit. I'm curious to hear what you think. Does it really matter how Roger defeated this enemy in your opinion? Well, either way, Roger's legend had begun. The next day, he set off to take both Malazzo and Rometta before heading to the coast to offload his booty to be sent back for safekeeping in Reggio. Now, from the perspective of the people of Messina, come daylight and news traveling the few miles back to the city of what had occurred that night, they could now see with their own eyes in the distance Roger packing up his riches on a nearby beach. They mistook this for Roger heading home and decided to take the youngest Hauteville by surprise. I mean, as far as they saw it, half of Roger's army was on board ships heading home. Disembarking was a long process, let alone setting up the army once off the boats was an entirely different undertaking itself. But see, here's the thing. None of Roger's men were actually boarding the ships to leave. Malaterra writes, quote, now, in fact, because the wind was unfavorable, no armed men had boarded the ships. When Roger realized that they were advancing against him, he sent out ahead his nephew, Serlo, the son of his brother, Serlo. We haven't really mentioned Serlo de Hopeville much at all in this entire podcast, and there's a simple reason for it. Serlo de Hopeville was the firstborn of the entire Hopeville brood. As we know about Normandy, Firstborn males were overwhelmingly favored through the process of primogeniture, meaning Tancred had easily, and long ago, decided that Serlo would be his sole heir. Serlo de Hopeville was back home in Normandy, ruling the Cotentin alongside his father until Tancred's death, when he inherited the whole darn thing. Serlo never had to seek his fortunes elsewhere, like all those younger brothers throughout the duchy, including his own. The, I don't know, 58 of them, it seems like. But Serlo had a son whom he named Serlo. <laughs> and Serlo Jr. wanted a piece of that southern Italian action that his uncles had for decades been boasting about. Serlo Jr. had joined Roger down south, and Serlo Jr., Jr. was something. He, he was something. This kid had guts and courage and honor and integrity. History easily says that Roger was the culmination of the Hopeville boys, but Serlo could have easily taken the title himself, if not for reasons we'll see soon enough. So, Serlo. Serlo heads out at cool Uncle Roger's behest with instructions, says Malaterra, quote, that if they wished to flee, as indeed they did, they should be allowed to do so. He himself pursued them at great speed, while they attempted to flee and intercepted them to such effect that scarcely one among the whole multitude escaped, end quote. It's a little murky, but this passage tells us that Roger initially sends Serlo ahead to put the men of Messina to fight, and that Cerlo should let them go, but that Roger would sweep in from another direction and chase them all down, cutting down nearly every single man who dared to challenge him that day? We've seen Roger in a few different lights so far. He's shown cleverness when he took the beaches at night, you know, drawing the men of Messina out for a fight, only to feign a retreat before charging back. The whole time, knowing he was buying time for his older brother Robert Guiscard to sweep in to an empty Messina and take it. We've seen Roger boldly charge into an enemy camp in the middle of the night, without any armor, and cleave a man in two winning the battle before it even began. Rogers taken towns. Rogers sent copious amounts of treasure and wealth back home. Roger sent his beloved nephew into the fray with the singular purpose of pushing the enemy right into his deadly hands, ruthlessly killing all challengers. Now, let's see Roger in a religious light. See, there was a, a custom in the 11th century when it came to booty one after combat. That which was taken during or after a battle, that which was once Muslim property, could not be given to God or a saint or an angel as a donation for good fortune or favorable weather or food, health or things like that, agricultural health, whatever now at what point the Mus- at what point the Muslim property technically like like legalistically speaking at w- At what point the Muslim property technically became Christian, I'm not sure. But it was generally accepted around the Mediterranean that Christians couldn't just take from Muslims and turn right around and dedicate it to their God. So in the case of Roger trying to get his wealth back home to Reggio and the weather and the seas simply not cooperating, well, Roger was said to have dedicated the wealth he was putting aboard his ships to a church in Reggio that was destroyed by his brother's earlier campaigns into Calabria years earlier. Malaterra writes, quote, It may seem that by giving the booty to God, they acted against canonical sanctions, end quote. Malaterra, see, he reasons it through. He does a little uh, spiritual gymnastics, if you will. And he decides, quote, We do not think it absurd to take from those who trust in God neither through their mouths nor in their hearts, end quote. Basically, if they're Muslim, it's okay to steal from them and then dedicate it to God in some way because, you know, it's a way to wash away the ick of Islam. That's pretty much what he, how he reasoned it through. He continues, quote, Indeed, it does not seem unreasonable to give what has been taken away from those who use things ungratefully, in that they do not recognize the giver, end quote. Malatera's stance on Islam, among so many others throughout the 11th century. And it goes the other way, too. Muslim chroniclers, they said their piece. Jewish chroniclers said their piece, although probably a little bit less. They weren't really in a position of power anywhere. But see, Malatera's stance on Islam seems to be that having perverted, and this is my estimation of what Malatera perceived in some of these other Christian chroniclers, so it's not me here, Malatera's stance on Islam seems to be that having perverted the message of God, the message given through the words and actions of Jesus of Nazareth and his disciples, Muslims were simply ungrateful for what God has provided them. Therefore, by their very spiritual nature, they have misused their wealth, influence, power, and property. Remember, this should not be forgotten as we inch our way closer and closer to the First Crusade. The way people think is often overlooked in our studies of history, in my opinion, so I'm trying to add that in a little bit. Context is key, right? The seas were pretty rough around that time. I mean, rough enough for Roger to reconsider sending his riches back. So with the wealth dedicated to rebuild a church back in Reggio, he was left twiddling his thumbs. He had a small army. No, effective, right, army, and a very hostile island that could turn on him at any point. Standing still is the single last thing an invading uh, army can afford to do. If they're not moving, they're losing, period. So Roger considered rushing into Messina, taking it once and for all. Malaterra writes, quote, he set off to attack the city at daybreak, knowing its forces to be much depleted. But although those who now survived in Messina were few in number, they and their women, along with them, defended their towers and ramparts as though for life itself. The count was worried that the whole of Sicily would be roused by this exploit and would fall upon him and return to his tents and began to consider his return to Reggio." Well, it turns out Roger's dedication, or his Patience, as the winds changed on their own, uh, worked, and Roger was able to set sail back home. Keeping it simple was the best option. He had less than 200 knights, and though he was very successful on that specific venture into Sicily, he would need far more support and a far bigger army if he was going to take and keep Messina. The moment Messina was held in any permanent way was the day he estimated that Muslim Sicily itself would turn on him. He had big dreams for the island, but he had to be patient. He had to keep a bird's eye view on things. He had to play the long game. And it's worth pointing out that all that reflection just now, you know, how Roger reasoned it all through after seeing the defense that Messina was still able to muster. Well, he had a long time to think about it. (laughs) While the waves crashed against his boats, the winds howled, and the storm arrived in full and whipped a furious downpour onto the beach. Despite Roger's efforts to get his men inland and find shelter, there were unknown bands of Saracens roaming about. Roger couldn't risk any of his men dying or being captured, so he decided that he and his men would, without shelter from the raging storm, they would wait it out on the beach itself. It took three days for the storm to subside, and in Malaterra's estimation, for his prayers to be heard. Three whole days, getting drenched on some northern Sicilian beach, shelter from, near, from nearby Messina in sight the entire time, as another chronicler, Amitus of Monte Cassino, wrote, quote, What with fear and cold together, they were in a most miserable state. End quote. Yeah, <laughs> he had time to think about the situation. He headed back to Reggio once the winds and the waves calmed, his boats heavy, and his figure beginning to develop its own center of gravity to the people around him. But if you can believe it, Roger wasn't quite safe yet. You see, Those folks from Messina, having lost thousands of their fathers and brothers and husbands the previous week, well, they weren't quite happy with Roger and his Normans' camp there on the beach. They decided to muster together all the warships they could and make the Norman return trip insufferably difficult. It wasn't exactly a measure to fight and defeat the Normans, more to just inflict as much revenge on them as they could, as much as much hatred and resentment on them as they could. Norwich writes that, quote, The ensuing naval battle continued to the very entrance of Reggio Harbor. One Norman ship was lost, the others battered but still afloat, struggled into the port to discharge their exhausted and shivering passengers. The expedition, after so promising a start, had ended in something suspiciously like a fiasco, end quote and you know it's it's interesting that the uh strait of messina there just i don't know a couple thousand years earlier or whatever odysseus had to go on his own journey home that seemed to start off so promising but very quickly go astray and there roger de hopeville was going through the same straits as odysseus did uh in in you know obviously not one to one comparison circumstances but but similar enough for the metaphor right But what hurts the most about the whole thing is that, is what Norwich says simply, quote unquote, the blame lay squarely on the shoulders of Roger. Back in Reggio, he made good on the promise to what he was to do with the wealth he accumulated. So after paying his men their shares, he donated the rest to rebuild the church of St. Andronicus just outside of Reggio. But Roger wasn't finished. As soon as he reached safer shores, he was already looking back over his shoulder, planning how he would enter the island next. I mean, there was a lot to reflect upon, a lot to look back and figure out what went wrong and what could have been done better. It's what every successful leader does. Besides, greatness isn't an achievement, greatness is more of an aggregate of great things achieved. Roger was bound to make mistakes. Keep in mind, he was only approaching, what, 30? He was in his late 20s. The question we're left with is, how will Roger bounce back going forward? Thanks for listening. Until next time.